Time magazine <clears throat> caught my attention recently with an article in which they reported on a Detroit man who died of fear. Uh, this man had been a fur trapper for many years and he had been bitten by many ticks. But then he heard that Lyme disease was caused by deer ticks. He became obsessed with the fear that he had contracted that disease and had actually passed it along to his wife. Uh, the doctors tested him and they assured him that he did not have Lyme disease. They also told him that it was virtually impossible to have passed it on to his wife. But he refused to believe what the doctors had said. He became so paranoid over the fact that he had contracted that disease that he killed his wife and himself. Police found his mailbox jammed with information on Lyme disease and they found a slip for yet another doctor's appointment to get yet another test. The article that I read concluded this way. Fear distorts a person's sense of reality. Fear consumes a person's energy and thoughts. Fear controls. Could I ask us all some questions this morning? Has fear distorted your sense of reality? Is fear consuming your energy and thoughts? Is fear in some way controlling you? Who of us can say this morning that we never struggle with any of these issues? I mean, even the sturdiest among us sometimes become so fearful that we act irrationally and unwisely because of fear. This morning, we are going to learn together how Jesus Christ has given us a way to cope with our fears. Instead of being controlled by them, Jesus will tell us that we can control our fears. Isn't that good news this morning? That's wonderful news for us. Now, we are returning to our series today on the Last Supper, and I want you to open your Bibles this morning to this wonderful passage that we have now come to in Mark chapter 14. And I want to read verses 1 through 6 today because we are going to look together at this wonderful, blessed hope that we have been singing about this morning. Now, as I read these verses, I want you to notice with me very much the structure of Jesus' statements to us. In verse 1, we have his command. In the second part of verse 2, we have his cure for the fears of life. And then in verses 2 to 6, we have the promises that this cure is based upon. Would you follow along as I read, keeping this structure of Jesus in mind? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we are a fearful people. And we confess today that sometimes, though others may sense that we have it all together, and we are not beset by the worries of life, if the truth were known, we often are afraid, afraid of the future, afraid of what is coming, afraid of the things we cannot control, afraid of the questions about what tomorrow holds. And Lord, because of that, we often lack the peace that you desired us to have. We often lack the tranquility of mind and heart so that we can serve you unfettered by the things that would bind us and the things that would hold us back. And so, Lord, today we thank you for these wonderful words of Jesus. Thank you that as real as they were for the disciples, so they can be for us today. And we pray that you might come now and calm our anxious hearts, that we would find wonderful rest today in you. We thank you and praise you for Jesus' wonderful sake. Amen. Let's notice that Jesus' command here for us is very simple. It is, don't fear the future. Now, when Jesus talks here about a troubled heart, he's using a very strong word. It was a word that meant for water to be roiled or stirred up. It was a term that referred to a mob that would be agitated and restless. It has this meaning, to strike one's spirit with fear and dread, to render us anxious or distressed, to perplex the mind. Now, the disciples were roiled, they were stirred, they were agitated and restless by three fears they had just learned about. Jesus had said one of them was a betrayer, a betrayer who would betray their leader. And they did not know who that was. He also said to them that the strongest one of them, the one they took their cues from, would collapse in utter weakness and would deny their leader. And then Jesus said that he was going to leave them, and where he was going, they would not be able to follow. Now, can you imagine that? In one brief conversation, their whole world was turned upside down. Their entire future, as far as they understood, was in doubt. Now, I want us uh, just for a moment this morning to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples. I want us to imagine that after church this morning, uh, someone was to come to you, and they were to have this conversation with you. 
Someone that you have trusted is a traitor. They can't say who, but they're going to turn against you, and they will do you serious harm. When this happens, the person that you have trusted as the most self-assured, the person that you could look to for direction, will collapse under pressure, turn tail and run as an utter weakling. And then the one that you thought would be with you forever, the one that you left everything for, will now leave you very, very shortly. Let me ask you, how many of us could handle that kind of conversation without fear, dread, agitation, and anxiety? I think very few of us would be able to handle that kind of uh, news given to us. Now we might say this morning, wait a minute, wait a minute. We know what's going to happen, right? Uh, Jesus is going to rise again. Uh, These circumstances are only going to be temporary. He's going to conquer death. He's going to ascend to heaven. He will have all authority on heaven and earth. Uh, There's no need for the disciples to worry. Jesus has everything under control. Everything is going to be all right. We all know that right. May I ask us a few questions this morning? Has Jesus risen for us? Has Jesus conquered death for us? Has Jesus ascended to heaven for us? Does He have all authority in heaven on earth uh, for our sakes? Is our future completely under His control? Then why don't we take our own medicine? Right? My old professor, Howard Hendricks, one time said this to us students. He said, if only 10% of what we believe is true, we ought to be 10 times more excited about it. And I thought when I heard him say that, you know what, not 10% of what we believe is true, but how much? One, yeah, all of it, all of it, 100% of it is true. And because we know that is true, we need not fear the future. We need not fear the future. Now, Jesus then moves here to the cure. And he says the cure for our fears is to trust in both the Father and the Son. He says, believe in God... And believe also in me. Now clearly, this is a very clear claim to deity on the part of Jesus Christ. Jesus is putting himself on the very same level as the Father. In just a few hours, the disciples would see him weak, powerless, defeated, and ultimately dead. And yet Jesus said, in spite of what your eyes are going to see in just a few hours, continue believing. 
That's the idea of the present tense here. Continue believing in God. Continue believing in me because I am God. Now remember, they had seen his omnipotence when he had calmed the storm. And so Jesus is saying, continue believing in me. They had seen his omniscience when he had read the thoughts of the Pharisees. And Jesus is saying, continue believing in me. They had seen his omnipresence when he had seen Nathanael from way off under a fig tree. And Jesus is saying, continue believing in me. Despite what you are about to experience and your eyes will not be able to deny, continue to believe that I am greater than what you are going to experience. But actually, there's, there's more here. There is a very critical reason why at this juncture, Jesus connects the Father and the Son, and it regards Jesus' mission. See, all throughout John's gospel, Jesus had referred to the fact that the Father had sent him on a mission. Uh, Keep your finger here and turn back with me to uh, John chapter 6 for just a moment. And I want you to notice this starting in verse 38. The word sent occurs multiple times as Jesus describes his mission from the Father. And notice what he says in verse 38 of John 6. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Look over at chapter 7 and and notice how Jesus picks up this theme in verse 33. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. Now notice here what Jesus is teaching us. The Father conceived a plan for redeeming a people that includes you and me. Jesus was sent to accomplish that plan. Part of it was dying rising and ascending back to the Father. All the hard events that were going to happen were in that plan, and they were a part of that very plan's fulfillment, and Jesus Christ was not being defeated. On the contrary, He was going to gain victory through that defeat. And now He was saying to His disciples, both Father and Son can be fully trusted to accomplish the mission despite all of the opposition that you will face. That's what Jesus was saying to them. I will never forget when I first learned the Christian view of history. I'd never given much thought to this. And then I learned what the Christian view of history is. Do you know what that view of history is? 
Let me share it with you for us for just a moment this morning. It is absolutely critical for us to live in this world in peace that we understand the Christian view of history. Now, letter B is the wrong view of history. This view says that history is an endless cycle running round and round and going nowhere. There is no plan. There is no purpose. Everything is random. It is all run by time and chance. And those who control it are essentially the survival of the fittest. By the way, sounds like Evolution, doesn't it? This is the evolutionary view of history. And there is no comfort in this view of history. This ultimately leaves you in despair and in dejection. But what is the Christian view of history? The Christian view of history is that it is a straight line. It is headed to a destination. And the one who is controlling that destination is Jesus Christ, who has received all authority from His Father. The Father and Son cannot be defeated because they are taking us to that destination. And no matter what happens, their omnipotence, their omnipresence, and their omniscience will prevail. And so we can affirm with the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord over history and over eternity. And so what Jesus is saying to us is we are to keep believing because He cannot fail. He cannot fail. Brothers and sisters, may I say to you today, this is the cure for all fear, all dread, all anxiety, and all agitation. We have both Father and Son, and in just a few short verses, Jesus will add, we also have the Holy Spirit. And that is the cure for all fear. Now, Jesus moves on in this wonderful explanation to us. And he tells us that our faith is based upon some wonderful promises that are yet to come. Those promises are found in verses 2 through 6. And they have to do with our heavenly home. Many years ago, there was a a well-known author by the name of Dave Hunt. He wrote a book with this title. Maybe some of you may remember it. Whatever Happened to Heaven? And this is what he said in the book. He said, Christians have always believed that our best life is yet to come. We have always believed that in this world we would have difficulties, we would have trials, tribulations, hardships, and problems. That our real home is in heaven, and our future destiny is the one thing, the one thing alone that sustains us in the present time. 
In this book, uh, this is what Dave Hunt said. He said, pastors preached about heaven. And Christians eagerly anticipated being taken up at any moment to meet their Lord in the air. Here was his concern. Hunt's concern was that was being lost. And it was being replaced by a focus more on this life and this life alone. That the blessed hope of heaven had become the blessed hope of having heaven now. Uh, By the way, it's not hard to argue with him when we have Christian bestsellers that are called Your Best Life Now. Brothers and sisters, this can never be our best life now. We are just passing through. Our true home is in heaven. And it is our focus on what is yet to come that sustains us in the trials, tribulations, hardships, difficulties, and problems of this life. And so, Jesus goes on to talk to us about what heaven is going to be like. And what we have in verses 2 through 6 is what Jesus says about heaven. Let me just put it up on the screen. Let me read the verses and we'll take a few moments together to understand what he means. Look again with me at verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now this is Jesus' description of heaven. Let's look at it for just a moment. Believers have a permanent home in heaven. When Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms, the emphasis here is that heaven is a permanent place where there will be plenty of room for all of God's children and we will enjoy God's family forever. Now we need to understand something about Jewish families. This image here on the screen helps us to understand what Jews would often do. When a son or daughter got married, they would add a room to the family compound, and the family would continue to grow larger and larger. So that while each husband and wife and children had one room, let's say for sleeping, they all would have access to the entire compound, And everyone enjoyed the family compound 
And family life was the center of daily activity. Now what Jesus is saying to us is that is what heaven is going to be like. In heaven, God's family compound is going to be the place where all of his children will enjoy God's family forever. We will know each other. We will have full fellowship with the Father and the Son, and as Jesus will add, with the Holy Spirit. And we will experience a permanent joy forever in this family relationship in heaven. Can you think today about some folks who have grown up in families totally opposite of this? Can you think this morning of some people when they think of family, think of pain and hurt and disappointment and sorrow? And now think of God saying, I love you so much, I'm inviting you into my family. And someday you're going to be in a perfect family forever. And you're going to enjoy the communal life of that family. That is the essence of what heaven is like. Notice, secondly, believers have a prepared home in heaven. Jesus says, I want you to understand, if this weren't the case, I wouldn't have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place. Now, I used to think that what this meant was that Jesus is currently now in heaven actively building heaven for us. I've preached that in funerals. But that is not the idea at all. Jesus prepared heaven by going there to be our Savior. That's what the Bible teaches. Because he is there, he has prepared an entrance for sinners like you and me through his blood if we will trust him. And the Bible says to us in Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is able to save us to the uttermost because he ever lives to make intercession for us. Heaven is prepared because Jesus Christ is already there at the right hand of the Father. Notice number three. Believers have a personal escort to heaven. In verse three he says, If I go, this is my promise, that because I prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, this is one of the clearest verses in all the Bible on the rapture of all believers. The word rapture means the the catching up of the saints. It's different from the second coming. At the end of the tribulation period, Jesus will come and He will set up His rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years. The saints of all the ages will come with Him from heaven. But the rapture is different. The rapture is that amazing experience that Jesus returns into the clouds for his children. It is unannounced. It could happen at any moment. And he will personally escort us to heaven if we have not already died and gone there And then we will go back with him to heaven while the tribulation occurs here on earth. 
and then finally come back with him to rule and reign with him on earth. And Paul says about this great coming rapture, this catching up when Jesus appears, that we will always be with the Lord. We will always be with the Lord. Now the fourth thing that Jesus tells us about heaven is believers have a precise path to heaven. When Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the little words and there could be understood this way. I am the way, even the truth, and even the life. So that the reason Jesus is the way is because he is the truth and he is the life. Now think about this. He is the truth because he has brought to us the gospel by which we can be saved. And he is the life because he imparts the divine life of God to us when we trust in him. Remember what he said back in, in John 3 as the speaking to Nicodemus. He said, Nicodemus, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. He said, you must be born again. And so what Jesus meant was that he gives us a new life when we trust him as Lord and Savior. Why is he the way? Well, it's because he's the truth and he is the life. Did you notice how, jo- how Thomas here spoke for many people who believe you cannot be sure that you're going to heaven. Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And how can we know the way? So many people uh, view it that way. I have a pastor friend one day who some Jehovah's Witnesses came to visit him. And in the course of the conversation, he said to these very religious people who study their Bibles and, and, and read them constantly and are prepared with all kinds of arguments, he said to them, do you know for sure that you have eternal life? They said, oh, you can't know that. You can't know that. You have to wait until you die. And only then can you know that you have eternal life. But Jesus said something far different, didn't he? He said, if you believe the gospel that he brought about his death, resurrection, and his ascension for your salvation, and if you receive the life that He gives by transforming the heart with the very life of God. You can know you are on the way. This morning I had no doubt that I was going to make it to church. Because I knew the road that I was on was the road that led right here to church. I'm not lost in the western UP somewhere. I knew exactly where that road was leading. And if you know and trust and belong to Jesus, then you can know you're on the right road to heaven. We have a precise path 
to heaven. One of the men who thought about this a great deal in relationship to the pain that we go through in life was C.S. Lewis. Some of you know that he wrote a book entitled The Problem of Pain. And in that book, he talked about the relationship of heaven to the pain that we suffer. Would you look at his insightful words this morning? Look. He said, there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven. But more often, I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts, we have ever desired anything else. It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want. The thing we desired before we met our wives, or made our friends, or chose our work, and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds, when the mind no longer knows wife, or friends, or work. Do you see how Jesus' logic here for us is impeccable logic? If God has chosen to care for our eternity, then surely He can be trusted to care for us in time. If our future life has already been provided for, then we need not fear in the present life. Do you see the message? Do not fear about the future. Trust in both Father and Son. The reason we can do that is we have a permanent home in heaven. We have a prepared home with a Savior who's already there. We will have a personal escort should we be alive when He returns. And there is a precise path. We can know we are on that path. And if all of that is true, then no worry No doubt, no fear can overwhelm us. All God's people said this morning, Amen. Let's take a moment, shall we, and let's thank the Lord. In just a moment, we're going to gather around the table of the Lord. We're going to meet with Jesus and experience His wonderful fellowship. I never leave this time, but that I walk out the doors of this sanctuary feeling closer to the Lord than when I came in. I never leave this service, but that whatever burden I have carried has been lifted. And I have felt the wonderful love of my Savior.
And this morning as we gather around his table, once again to be inspired by his presence, I pray that for you. Maybe you're here today and you are uncertain of your salvation. Maybe you have been trying to live a good life. Maybe you have been a religious person. Maybe you would feel, I've kept the Ten Commandments. I've been kind to others. But deep down, there is no certain knowledge that if I were to die today, I would go to be with the Lord in heaven. That if there were to be a trumpet sound, the shout of the archangel, and the call of God, you are not sure that you would be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. I'm convinced that if the rapture were to occur on a Sunday morning, there would be people in church left behind. And oh, how I would not want that to be you. And so today, before we come to the table of the Lord, I wonder if perhaps you might just say in your heart, Lord Jesus, I want to be sure where I stand with you. I know that I'm a sinner. Many of the worries of my life I have caused, perhaps by your own wayward behavior. And you know that you have no merit before God. But today you would say, Lord Jesus, I do believe. I believe you died for me and paid for my sins. I believe you rose again that I might have life from above. I believe you ascended back to heaven. You're at the right hand of the Father. You're even now pleading the merits of your precious blood for all who will trust you. You might say, Lord Jesus, right now I repent. I turn from my own way, my own effort, and I cast myself on you. I invite you into my heart to be my Savior. I invite you into my life to be my Lord. I ask that you would forgive all of my sins. That you would give to me the gift of eternal life. That this very moment, you would make me a child of God. And then, Lord Jesus, out of thankfulness, I will follow you, God helping me with all my heart. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. Oh, Father, today, I pray that you would hear the cry of many hearts. And I pray that you would cause 
people, even religious people, to be born anew from above. And I pray that today will be a day of souls coming into your kingdom and under your care and living for you with all of your resources until you call us heavenward to our eternal home. Thank you now for just this taste of heaven that we will experience. Fellowship around your table. For Jesus' sake. Amen.